welcome. Good morning to you. My name's Ronnie, if I haven't met you yet. And I get to work with the college students in Salt Company. And so what a privilege that is. Thanks for being a church already that, that loves them so well. Really excited to see what happens next week, to see how creative you guys get. We're going to be in, in Luke chapter 6 today, if you want to get your Bibles out. If you don't have, have one of these, we actually always have them out at the, the welcome table on the way in. You can pull up an app on your phone, or maybe your neighbor will let you share with them. But, but Luke chapter 6, and, and my wife, Caitlin, and I, and then my son, Jack, it, it has been like such a, an exciting experience to see like all this come together. Like this new church, uh, the new college ministry, people meeting Jesus, people getting baptized. And one of the things that we do as a church is we're just like, hey, here we are, we don't really know what we're doing, but let's just look at the life of Jesus and let's, let's look at what he did, what he called us to do, and just try to follow him. And so that's what we've been doing in, in the Gospel of Luke. We've been working our way through and we've seen some like pretty big things happen, right? We've seen Jesus be, be baptized. We've seen him go into the wilderness and be tempted. We saw his, his first uh, public message. And then last week, we saw him start to call his first followers. And we see these, these big things happen, and Jesus is starting to gain some traction. He's becoming, he's becoming famous. Like People are starting to follow him. And one of the things that I wonder is I, I look out at the world today, and I see that, that Christianity is now this global movement, global, like all across the world. It's also a historic movement that's been happening throughout history. It, it crosses cultures, millions upon millions of people right now on, on a Sunday morning worshiping this Jesus that we see at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke just kind of on his own out there teaching and preaching and healing. And, and my question is, is how did this happen? How did we go from this small band of people? We saw last week that there were these fishermen that he just said, hey, will you come and follow me? How did it go from these couple followers to this, this big worldwide historic movement? The answer is God, right? Short answer, God did it. But how? How did he do it? And the answer that we're going to look at today and what we're going to see is, is Jesus actually built a team. He built a team. And that's what we're going to see in Luke chapter 6. And even if you think about like the great stories, the great movies of our, our world, this is the scene where like the team is coming together. Do any of you guys seen like the, the Mighty Ducks movies back, back in the day? There's a couple of them. Do you remember the scene where they're like riding throughout the neighborhood and they're on rollerblades and they've got like the duck call and they're, they're, like, the gang is getting back together, and they're pulling up at the houses, and like, this, this team is forming, and they're about to go do something crazy. Maybe some of you that haven't seen the Mighty Ducks, younger generation, like the, the Avengers movies, they're finding people from all over the world and, and bringing them together. There's just something exciting about like, the team getting together. And, and that's what we're going to see. The, these, these first followers of Jesus last week we saw with Peter become this worldwide movement really because Jesus decides to make a team. And we see that here in, in Luke chapter 6. Robert Coleman was a, a pastor and a seminary professor. And as he studied the life of Jesus and tried to answer that same question, like how did we get to where we are today, he came up with just this statement. And he wrote a book about it where he said, men were his method. Men and women called to follow Jesus. They were his method. He invested in the few so that they would go and reach the many. And so the big idea that I want to share with you guys today and that we're going to explore is that really this, this good news for all people that we've been talking about as we've looked look through Luke's gospel, this good news that we've seen Jesus announce and preach is going to come to the world through a team effort. Okay, it's going to come through a team. And that's where the ball gets put in our court because we're a part of that team if we're a Christian. And for you today, maybe if you've, you've never really thought of your Christian life as life on a team, I, wanna, I want that switch to happen in your mind today. If you've just been showing up more as just an individual, as someone that comes to, to hear and, and have some benefit happen to you, I mean, even, even right now, just like look to your right and left. Actually, actually do it. Look around at the people around you. 
this is a team. If you, are, if you are a Christian, you are on a team, and God wants to use you, and that's what we're going to see today, and I hope that, that this does something to help you even get more in the game. And so what we're going to see is in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 26, we're first going to see Jesus basically pick his team, then he's going to invite them to join in his mission, and then he's going to tell them what life on the team will be like. So let's start with that first part of Jesus picking the team. Luke chapter 6, picking it up in verse 12. In these days, Jesus, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called a zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. All right, so pause there. This is the picking of the team. And so first thing you notice, it says that Jesus, he, in those days, he goes out to the mountain. So in these days, this is everything that we've seen up until this point. He's, he's making a name for himself. He's calling his first people, but this is a pivotal moment in the gospel of Luke where God is wanting to do something big. Anytime that you see something happening on a mountain in the Bible, there's usually something big happening. And actually, this, this mountain right here is, is likely Mount Sinai that we would see in Exodus chapter 19. We see Moses climb up on the mountain to meet with God on behalf of the people to see just the history of God's work in the world move forward. So Exodus 19, we see it again in, in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah meets with God on this very same mountain, Mount Sinai. Interestingly, you know another name for Mount Sinai is, is Mount Horeb? Anybody ever hear Mount Horeb? It's like half an hour west of here, right? So if you didn't know that, if you learned anything today, Mount Horeb, this town that is like half an hour west of us, is named after this mountain that we're seeing Jesus meeting with God up on right now. But again, anytime that someone goes up on a mountain in the Bible, there's usually something big happening. And Luke's trying to signal that to us, that God is doing something. And so we have Jesus up there. We know he's meeting with his, his father in prayer. It doesn't directly mention the Holy Spirit, but you got to assume he's up there, right? I mean, like, it can't just be Jesus and the Father. we got the Holy Spirit. They're, the Trinity is meeting together to decide, what are we going to do next? How are we going to push the mission of God forward? And what do they do? They pick a team. It says he picks these people. It says he gathers his disciples around them, and then he appoints some of them apostles, and it lists off their names. So first, just that word disciple. This is what Rob talked about last week. Disciple, it, it means learner. So in that time, you'd have these Jewish rabbis that would walk around, and, and what a disciple would do is a disciple would attach themselves to a rabbi, a teacher, and you wouldn't just learn information from the rabbi. You would learn an entire way of life. We saw that Peter and his friends, they, it says they left everything to follow Jesus. They weren't just learning a new subject in school. They were learning a whole new way to live. And that's what it means to be a disciple. That's what we saw last week. And this should challenge us. I want to put that out to us just as a challenge. You know, so if, if Christianity for you has been more like, like a hobby or an interest up until this point, something that you do, and, and if you're exploring the faith, like, so glad you're here explore. I, I do want to just show you the trajectory that as you explore, if you want to become a follower of Jesus, it means that you end up following him, not just learning new ideas. One way to think about it is for Christianity, for you, your relationship with Jesus, is it, is it something that uh, fits on your calendar? You know, it, po it pops up on your Google, Google calendar as like a, a thing that you do during the week? Or has your relationship with Jesus, your life as a disciple, a learner, transformed your whole calendar? 
Is your calendar now set in the context of, of I'm learning a whole new way of life, the way of Jesus, and I'm following him? That's who these disciples were, men and women that gave up everything to follow him, and that's what it means for us today. And it doesn't always mean that we, we quit our job or, or something crazy like that. Sometimes it does, but it, it transforms who we are inside the same circumstances we were already in transforms who you are in your job. And so that's the disciples. But then it says he picks these specific people called apostles. Okay, the apostles. We see this in verse 13, and then he lists them off. So this is a, a specific group that he's, he's leaning in. Remember, he's just met with God the Father, and they've decided this is what we need to do to move the plan forward. We're going to pick these people. And what apostles were is it was a special one-time role that was to lay the foundation for the church to come. This is the team, these were the men, along with the disciples, which were men and women, that would lay the foundation for what we're doing here today. And the word apostle, it literally means sent one. So that's one way to understand who they were, is, is Jesus was going to send them as, as, listen to me, an, an authoritative witness to who he was. They were going to be given an authority, a specific authority that would never again happen, but these specific 12 people were given authority to bear witness to Jesus. And so they would follow him around, and they were going to record what they heard and what they saw. And you know what, what that became is our New Testament of the Bible. The apostles wrote down what they had learned of Jesus. So we have a trustworthy account of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus in our Bible because he, he reached out and named these, these guys apostles. And as they were walking around and, and recording all these things and learning the way of Jesus themselves, their task that Jesus would give them, and we'll see this at the end of the Gospel of Luke, is to now go take that mission to the world. So this global, cross-cultural, historic movement that we're a part of today, worshiping with so many other Christians around the world on Sunday morning, started because Jesus picked this team. And just a, a little note, if you notice that there's 12 of them, Anyone who's reading this that, that was Jewish at the time would have seen Luke trying to signal to them this number 12, which was really significant in their history because there were 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes that, that God had chosen to take his message of salvation to the world. Israel's call, the nation of Israel, was always to be a blessing to the whole world. And the fact that they failed throughout history had left them kind of wondering, what, what will God do next? They had failed to do it. They'd been inward focused. They hadn't taken the message of God to the world. But now here's Jesus appointing 12 new representatives, 12 new people that are going to take that message to the world. So this is the team. And so a little bit of application for us. If you notice and you, and you look down, the, the specific words that he uses for these people is it says he called his disciples and then he chose from them 12. I just want you to know that those words are true for you if you're a Christian, that you were called and chosen None of us are, are good enough in and of ourselves to just kind of sign up to be, to be with Jesus. We're in our, in our sin. We're in a spot where we're really not all that helpful to him in his mission. But this is what God does. He calls and he chooses. He reaches out and he calls us and he chooses us. And so two things that we need to know is that first, God makes us a team before we really even know each other. If you look at the, the different lists of the apostles' names, we're going to learn more about these guys as we read the Gospel of Luke. But just to point out a couple of them, you have, you have Peter and Thomas that both get called apostles. Peter, his, his personality was very bold, very optimistic, always kind of taking the, the charge, taking the hill. Thomas was more of a doubter, more of a pessimist. And so we have two totally different personalities. They probably didn't really like each other, wouldn't want to hang out with each other, but Jesus calls them to be on the same team. And that happens for us as well. Think about your, your connection groups and the people that they don't share the same personality as you, but you just kind of showed up here in, in Madison or you showed up to Doxa and God has put you in community. He's put you on a team with people before you really even know each other. 
And then the second one is he puts us in the game before we're ready. We're going to see this one play out in a big way throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke, that these men were not really ready for the task that they had. They didn't have a clue, but God put them in the game before they were ready. So Christianity, guys, has always been a team sport. It's always been. It's always been about a team. It's been about a team that is moving throughout history to take God's mission and his message to the world. And so that's the question for us is, do we view our Christian life as life on a team? Is that how you view it? Of course, view it as like taking personal responsibility for your own walk with Jesus. But do you, do you view yourself as one who is on a team, has teammates, and then is, is on a mission? Do you know what the mission is? Do you know what the mission that he's given us, the purpose that he's given us as a team? That's what we're going to look at next. Look at verses 17 through 19. He's met with them on the mountain. He's named off his apostles and his disciples. And then starting in verse 17, it says this. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. There's our word all that we've been talking about in this series. He healed them all. So Jesus goes up on the mountain, he picks his team, he comes down, and what do we see him doing here? He's basically, he's inviting them now to be a part of his mission. Again, up until this point, Jesus has been out there doing a whole bunch of stuff, but last week we saw him say, hey, now I want you to follow me, and now he's saying, now I want you to get in the game with me. Look back at verse 17 when it says, he came down from the mountain with them. I just want to stop here for, for a second and linger on, the, on this word. Remember, men were his method. Jesus didn't come up with, with a crazy program. He said, I'm going to pick 12 men. I'm going to pick a, a band of, of disciples around them, and they are going to be my method. And guys, this is really, this is what we're trying to do in Doxa, is we're trying to be with people. We're trying to help each other follow Jesus. This is our plan. So, so all of us investing in, in a few of us, teaching one another how it is that we can follow Jesus. And there's some like organized ways that we do that as a church. We always talk about connection groups as like, this is the place where if you want to get around other Christians and help one another follow Jesus, we're hoping that it, it happens in, in there. So there's, there's organized ways. But guys, connection groups don't make disciples. Connection groups don't help people follow Jesus. Connection groups are a, a structure, right? People help people follow Jesus. Connection groups are, are the context. And so inside of your connection group, are you, are you helping each other follow Jesus? Connection group leaders, are you, are you kind of taking responsibility to say, how can I make sure that in my group we're helping one another follow Jesus? Rob, the other, the other pastor of this church, he went deep with me when I was a freshman in college. He invested deeply in me. He taught me how to follow Jesus along with some other people. He, he connected me to other Christians. He showed me how to help someone else follow Jesus. And I've seen him continue to disciple and continue to invest in people. And I've learned how to, to do it as well. And, and that's what we're doing. That's what we, we're doing on the team is we're helping one another follow Jesus. And this is an urgent thing. It's not just for the sake of us being excited that we're, we're kind of in the game and we're helping one another, but, but there's a mission. And we see it actually in this passage. Did you notice that it, it talked about this great multitude? Look back at verse 17. It says, a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So these people are sick. And we read on and it says, they were troubled with unclean spirits. 
this great multitude, just so picture being there with Jesus and the apostles and the disciples and seeing this crowd, this great multitude is not God's dream for the world. A great multitude of, of, of sick and hurting people oppressed by evil spirits. I was talking to a friend the other day on campus, and he's, he's not a believer in Jesus. He has a little bit of a Jewish background. And as we were just talking about events that are happening in the world, we talked about the, the shooting that happened in Pittsburgh and just those kind of things happen and just raise us questions of how did, how did the world get like this? If, if God is good, if God is powerful, then how are we, we living in a world that has, you turn on the news at any moment and there's so much pain, so much suffering. And as he asked me, like, well, what's the Christian explanation for that? I took him back to, to Genesis chapter one. In the beginning of the story where we see that God actually, he created people, he created them good, he created a perfect world, and he actually told these people to go and be fruitful and multiply. So God was imagining a multitude. He wanted there to be a multitude of people flourishing. No evil, no pain, no murder, no suffering. That was God's dream. So how do we get from God's dream of this multitude of flourishing to what we see here in Luke chapter 6 of a multitude of suffering, a multitude of pain, a multitude of, of oppression? And so he's kind of leaning in. He's like, yeah, how, how did we get to that? And then I had to take him to Genesis chapter 3, where we see that in the God's perfect world, this unclean spirit, this dark force, Satan, the devil, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, he snuck into the garden and he, and he led this, basically a revolution against God. He deceived humanity. He was after God's throne and he said, hey, let's leave God behind and let's go chart our own course. Let's, let's rebel against him. And this massive rebellion took place led by this unclean spirit, Satan. And this is where we see sin enter the world. You see the first murder happening in Genesis chapter four and you see evil just continue to spiral after that all because of this mass rebellion. And that's the multitude that Jesus and his apostles and his disciples, they walk down and see and he's inviting them now to be a part of his mission where he's gonna do something about it. Did you see what he did? Look back at verse 18 and 19. It says, they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from them, and he healed them all. Jesus and his team, they're bringing good news to all people. They approach the multitude, and Jesus brings his disciples with them to see them. And, and what are they doing? This is like the counter-revolution. You know the, the movies where it's like this small band of unlikely people come together to, to go against like the, the leaders and the powers at B? There's like darkness that sits, I mean, there's so many of those movies coming out right here, like uh, Divergent and Hunger Games and all these things. There's this little team of people that, that know that something is up and something is wrong, and we're going we're gonna to form like a counterinsurgency against them. That's what we see happening here. In a world that's been filled with, with uh, the disease of sin, Jesus is walking in and saying, I'm going to heal you all of that. He's casting out the unclean spirits, and he's inviting his disciples and apostles to be a part of it. What a great adventure that we, his team, get to be a part of. Do you know, as, as a Christian, that that's what's going on? That we live in a world where there is such thing as, as good and evil. There's a real God, and there's a real devil, and there's a deception that's been going on, and we get the privilege of being on the team that Jesus started long ago that is pushing back the darkness, we are lights in the darkness. And so, I don't know about you, I get bored in my Christian life sometimes. I get bored in, in my life and just kind of, I kind of am just, I'm showing up and, and going to church and I'm going to connection group and it's like, 
I get so me-focused and I stop thinking about the mission and it, and it leads to me feeling bored. But when I see passages like this and I remember the mission and I remember the multitude, it opens my eyes. Are you bored in your life with Jesus? And if you are, are you engaged in this mission, being a light in the darkness? And we see here that, that it was a massive success, right? Can you imagine being the apostles? They come down from the mountain after just getting picked to be on Jesus' team. You'd think they'd be feeling pretty, pretty great about themselves at that point. Then, just picture the scene. They're standing out there with him. He, they come down on a level plane, and, and he's just this multitude of sickness and disease and oppression, and Jesus is, is healing them all, and they just get to stand there and see it. Imagine what they were, what they were feeling like, probably feeling pretty excited about the possibilities of what was going to happen for them next. And then it says, if you read verse 20, uh, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, if we just pause there, after such a massive success, you've got to be wondering, what is, what is Jesus going to look over to them and say? And it's almost like, you guys seen uh, Bruce Willis in Die Hard? He says, yippee ki right? Or more like modern thing, like, how do you like them apples? I don't know. You can, you can talk in your connection groups of what you think Jesus might have been saying at this point in time. I, I, imagine it. He, he walks down, and this one man with his, his team, they just totally push back the darkness. But Jesus doesn't say that. He calls a little team meeting, and he's going to debrief with them now on expectations of what they can expect on this team. So that's verses 20 through 26. And it's interesting. It's counterintuitive. It's not what you would have expected and two things to know before we read the passage. First, he's talking to just his team. So Jesus now, he's not talking to the crowds. He's talking only to people that are actually following him, that have actually come into a saving relationship with God through him, his apostles and his disciples. And he's not telling them, this is how you need to live in order to be on my team. He's not telling them that. They're already on his team. He's telling them, this is what life will be like since you're on my team. Do you guys get that distinction? We have to have that in our heads as we read what Jesus is going to say so we don't make the mistake of thinking Jesus is saying, here's the requirements to get in. That's not the case. He's only talking to his team saying, this is what life will be like for you. And he's setting their expectations in light of the massive success that they just had. So let's read verses 20 through 26 together. This is the, the kind of after game speech, team meeting. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven." for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now he's going to contrast it with kind of some opposite statements. So pick it up in verse 24. But woe to you. So I feel sorry for you. This would be another way to say that. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So this is the team meeting. After this, he picks the team, they have this massive success, and then this is what he says to them to set their expectations about what life on the team 
is going to be like. And so let's dive into it. The first things are these, he pronounces these blessings. And blessed in the Bible, especially in this specific context here, it, it means happy. He's saying like, you, you will experience a state of happiness. You will be happy in this life. But happy when? Happy even though you're poor. Happy even though you're hungry. Happy even though you're sad. Happy even though you're hated. Very interesting things Jesus is saying here. And he's likely talking about both physical and spiritual poverty, physical and spiritual hunger, physical and spiritual sadness. There's a, another section in Matthew's gospel called the Sermon on the Mount that says a lot of these same things. And they kind of debate whether or not this was the same exact scenario or this was just the same teaching given in a different place because the Sermon on the Mount happened on a mount and this sermon happened on level ground. So they're not really sure. But either way, this is what Jesus is saying. And it's, it's key teaching about what life on his team is going to be like. And he's, telling, he's not saying to be a Christian, you need to be poor and hungry. He's not saying that because there's no prerequisite like that. But what he is saying is that life as a Christian might make you poor, might make you hungry. And there's the spiritual side of just being poor in spirit, as Matthew's gospel translated, of this, this poverty, this humility, this, this opposite of pride, this knowing that we need God. He's describing the character of Christians, of people that are on his team. Happy even though you're poor. Happy even though you're hungry. Happy even though you're sad. Happy even though you're hated. And it helps us to understand it if we look at the contrast. He says, I feel sorry for you. Woe to you if you're rich. Woe to you if you're full. Woe to you if you're laughing. Woe to you if you're popular. But notice that key word, now. He says, I feel sorry for you if now you are those things. Because why? What's the reason? Like, why, why is such a difference between those two things? The reason is all about the reward. Okay, if you look at, at the woes in verse, I believe, 26, or no, 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 verse uh, 24, he says, Woe to you who are rich now, for you have received your consolation. But then if you back it up to the, to the blessings, he says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So the reward is in the life to come for the Christian. The consolation, the reward, is in the life now for the non-Christian, the person that's not yet on Jesus's team. And so he's not saying it's, it's necessarily bad to be rich or bad to be poor or bad to be hungry, but he's saying it's all about where are you looking for your reward? Is your reward in this life? If so, then, then that's a, a small consolation because in the next life, you won't get a reward. You'll get punishment, he says, mourning, crying. But if your reward's in the next life, then there's a way that you can be happy even though you're poor now, happy even though you're hungry now. So let me put it to you guys like this. When we become a follower of Jesus, we actually don't live our best life now. We don't. Our best life now will be later. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall one day be fully satisfied. And so we're, we're happy now, but it's not a happiness that's ultimately rooted in our, in our present temporary circumstances. We're, we're happy because of what we see coming in the life to come. And we don't want the consolation prize of, of laughter in this life only. We want the, the eternal joy. We want the kingdom of heaven that he's talking about. So he's telling them, guys, I know we just had a massive success, but life on my team is not going to look like success in the eyes of the world. It's not, but there is a reward in heaven, verse 23. 
And, and to sum it up like this, and this will all become more clear to you as we keep walking through it, I think he's, he's introducing to them a, a key principle that we're going to see throughout the whole rest of the Gospel of Luke, and it's this, the cross before the crown. The cross before the crown. On Jesus' team, we experience the cross now, the crown later. We don't, we don't experience the crown, the satisfaction, the fullness, the riches now. We experience those things later. And if you're someone that does experience, let's say, material riches now, again, that's fine. But unless you know Jesus, it's a small consolation because you won't have the reward of the kingdom of heaven. And as he pulls his team together to give them this, this message, and he tells them, hey, here's the key principle, cross before the crown, he's simply telling them, your life is going to look like mine. Your life as you're following me is going to look like mine. And we see that the team that Jesus assembled, it's been cross-shaped since the very beginning. The destination has always been to the cross, and we can see that because he picked Judas to be on the team. Did you guys notice that? We kind of skipped over it, but verse 16 it says he picked this guy named Judas, the son of James, and then Judas Iscariot, so a different Judas, who became a traitor. Jesus knew that his mission coming to earth wasn't to have the crown yet, wasn't to have the power yet. His mission coming to earth was to die, was to go to the cross. And so in his team, his team that he's putting together to save the world, he puts somebody on his team that he knows is going to betray him and lead him to the cross. The mission was always the cross. Why? Because that's where Jesus would heal humanity. When we were talking about the, the darkness and the sin that, that pollutes our world, the cross is where Jesus would go and he would take the darkness upon himself. He would take the sickness upon himself. Before he could be the king of this new people that he's trying to create, he would have to go to the cross for them to pay for their sin. He took the cross before the crown and then so will his team, so will we. That's the principle of life on his team, the cross before the crown. We see it in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says it like this. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus was joyful. He was happy. It's, I'm not talking about cross before the crown means miserable existence. It just means that our highest joy, our highest treasure is not in this life. It's in the life to come. And we see that with him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And now he wears the crown. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter, who was there this day when he first heard this teaching, and we're going to hear Jesus give a similar teaching throughout the Gospel of Luke, later on in his life, he's talking to some churches and he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Jesus had been teaching him. And, and Peter learned this. We get the cross now. We get the crown later. So don't, don't think it's strange when your life as a Christian doesn't actually become easier. Okay? I, I think we're going to experience some amazing joys in this life. And I even think we're going to experience some, some great temporary happiness and pleasures. I'm not saying that to be a Christian means none of that will happen. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that this big principle over our lives is cross before the crown. And so some of you are suffering hard right now. If you're a Christian, don't think that that's strange. It's actually all part of the plan. We get the cross now, the crown later. Sometimes pain now, 
glory later. The Apostle Paul, he put it this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's Galatians 2.20. Crucified with Christ. That's a way that we need to, we need to look at our Christian lives is a life that is, is crucified. Again, crucified doesn't mean miserable. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But it means our ultimate joy, our ultimate satisfaction, the, the hungers being satisfied happen in the next life. And so bringing it all together, we see that Jesus came to bring good news to all people, and he came to do it through a team. We got to this point today through a team, but it wasn't just any team. It was a team shaped by the cross. You could think of it as, you know, good news to all people. It's going to come through a, a crucified team effort, a team that is shaped by the cross, the message of, of the gospel. And so, Doxa, we've been handed that baton from the apostles. That was their job. Their job was to follow Jesus around, learn his ways, hear his teachings, record it for us in the Bible. Jude, who wrote, who was in this, this group, writes down in, in chapter one of his letter, guys, contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Contend. The church's job ever since these days was, was to have this faith delivered to us once and for all from the apostles, from Jesus' original team, and then contend for it in every generation, across every culture in every time period, and that's our, our job. That's our mission as a, as a team, is to contend. And so I wanna end with, with four ways that we take the cross before the crown. Okay, so four ways, and these, these are just gonna be some, some ideas coming out of, out of the text. I think in your connection groups, you can come up with way more than these and way more applications. I just wanna get us started thinking about what does it mean then for our team, the church, to, to live cross before the crown in this life? The first one is this generosity in a world of greed. We practice radical, sometimes crazy-looking generosity in a world of greed. Verse 20 says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Again, not all, all Christians are financially poor by these standards, but you got to do understand that all across the world, there's so many different standards based on your culture of whether you're rich or poor. So Jesus is not teaching you need to become financially poor to become a Christian, but he is teaching that if you're a Christian and you're financially poor, you can still be happy. You can still have joy because your treasure is in heaven. And then get this, even though all Christians aren't going to be financially poor, and nor should they be, this isn't a call to, to be poor on purpose, but all of us as Christians really probably should be more poor than we could be. Here's what I mean by that. Because we practice radical generosity, what Rob was even talking about, I... I will, I will be giving away my, my money for my whole life. I will be giving away a percentage of my money that might seem crazy to the, to the world for the rest of my life, and I'll never be as rich as I could be. I'll never have as much money as I could. And, and I hope that there's Christians that make a ton of money so that they can give a ton away. But all of us should be practicing this radical generosity. We take, we take the cross of sacrifice now because we know our treasure is in heaven. We'll never be as rich as we could be if we're Christians. But ours is the kingdom of God, and ours is the treasure of heaven. So we happily take up that cross, and we, we cheerfully give. The second one is self-denial in a world of self-expression. Okay, so we practice self-denial, which again looks crazy to the world, because the world is all about self-expression. It says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. 
So obviously we can think about this in terms of, of physical food, but what about just like our, our other cravings and appetites that we have? I think that we live in a world right now that is, is the, the default mode is just to, to express ourselves. If it feels good, then do it. I think for a while, uh, Subway was really working hard in like this kind of self-denial thing, and they were really promoting uh, healthy eating and like only do like the six-inch sub and like get the vegetables on it and you can lose weight. And they were, they were making money off that and it was going really well. And then I think that maybe just the competition came in and squashed them out, and so they had to come up with a new marketing strategy. Have any of you guys seen the new, the new Subway commercials? It's like, it's like neon lights going everywhere, and then this like woman's voice like in, like with like techno in the background, kind of like seductive sounding, and then just like these sub sandwiches that are just dripping with, with cheese and like triple meat and all these like sauces. And then in the background, it's just this woman being like, you can have it your way, anything you want. And it's just like over, it's like me mesmerizing happening. It's crazy. Self, Self-expression. Subway did that. They pivoted because that's what, that's what we want. That's what we want to hear. That's what our world wants to hear is it's just, just help me feel good now as quickly as possible. It, to, the only sin would be to, to, deny, to deny myself something, right? But as Christians, we take the cross before the crown and we practice just a, a radical self-denial in a world that says just act on every impulse that you have. Again, in your connection groups, you can talk about so many more of these, but you think about sexuality as an example, that, that the Christian view on sexuality is all about this. Deny yourself until the right context and then experience the crown. Deny yourself and, until the right context, which is marriage, and then experience the crown. And so if you're single, I just want to encourage you, it is, don't think it's strange that it's hard to deny yourself because we live in, in a world that is all about self-fulfillment and self-expression. But Jesus, as, as he would call you as his disciple, would say, hey, practice self-denial in this way. And, and we're not talking about Buddhism which would say, detach yourself from all pleasure and all suffering so that you just don't feel anything and you can kind of protect yourself from those things. We're talking about Christianity, which actually says, you, you'll be happy. You'll be happy even though you're hungry. You know that? In this life, you can be happy even though you're hungry. As we deny ourselves, whether it's with something like sexuality or something else you guys come up with that you see in the Bible, we can be happy and we leap for joy now as we look to the age to come. C.S. Lewis uh, put it this way. He was a Christian author and a thinker. Talking about pleasure, he says, it would seem that our Lord, when he, when he reads the Bible, finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. So as Lewis reads his Bible and he looks out at the world, he thinks that, that we aren't actually seeking pleasure hard enough. We aren't seeking pleasure hard enough, but I want to tell you the key pleasure principle is this, cross before the crown. The third one is this, engagement in a world of distraction. Engagement in a world of distraction. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. We look at Jesus entering the scene, and, and Jesus was a joyful man. He was a happy man, but he also knew when it was time to mourn and when it was time to weep. And at the cross, we see him ultimately identifying with the pain and the suffering of humanity. He engages with it. He doesn't run away from it. There was a, a college professor and cultural critic named Neil Postman, who in the 80s, he wrote a book 
that the main kind of point was that we are a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death. I think that was the title of the book, like Amusing Ourselves to Death. And what he had his finger on is that we, we live in a, in a world that is, is real and it's full of, of deep love and deep pain and deep joy. But sometimes those things are hard to engage with. It takes work to get there and it can hurt you to engage with pain. And so with all of our technology, what we started to do is we started to just find distractions. And he says we're amusing ourselves to death. He says we're swimming in a sea of triviality. And when I hear Jesus say, for the Christian, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. I hear him talking to me when, you know, I pull up my phone and I get, it seems like every day I get a notification about another shooting that happened or another tragedy that happened. And I'm like, I look at it on my phone and I have a choice to make of, what do I, what do I even do with this? And you know what I usually do is I usually swipe it and then I check the score on a sports game or something. Because I, I just don't want to engage with that. I don't know what to do about that. I find a distraction. There's so many different ways you could think about that, but I wonder for you, like, are there any serious things in your life right now that you've been avoiding because you've just been finding distractions? Is there suffering or pain, or is there there's something just like some work that God needs to do in your heart that because it takes work to get there and because it's kind of like a cross, you've been avoiding it and just finding distractions? But Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. We can't avoid the pain that's here in our lives or in the world's lives around us. But notice he's not saying we're going to be miserable. He's not saying blessed are our Christians that are miserable for their whole lives. But he says Christians know when to engage with mourning, engage with weeping. And at the same time, somehow, even while we weep, we're happy, we're blessed. Here's the last one. Faithfulness to Jesus in a world that will reject us. This is the last thing that Jesus said. He says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they revile you, when they scorn you on account of the Son of Man. Remember, being a disciple is to completely identify yourself, to leave everything else behind and follow this man, Jesus. And Jesus says, because you're affiliated with me, just as I'm going to be rejected, you will too. And so our mission is to speak about Jesus, guys. It's to speak about him. It's to speak about him everywhere we go. He calls these, these people, these first Christians, like they're like the true prophets, the true speakers of God. But it can be tricky, right? I mean, picture yourself at your workplace. Picture yourself among the people that you work with, with the responsibility on this team, right? This team that we're a part of, to, to faithfully speak about Jesus. And to do that with, with a, a heart that is compassionate and empathetic and winsome, you know, and knowing when to ask a question and when not, but to, to actually get to the point where you're speaking about Jesus. You know, someone makes a, a racist comment at work, and because you're a Christian, and you believe in the Christian story that God created all people with dignity and value, you need to speak for Jesus. You need to speak truth into that situation. And that might, might cause a conflict. It might cause somebody to be mad at you. It might cause someone to, to reject you. Same workplace, and, and someone else is advocating for the right to kill unborn children in the womb. They're advocating for that. They're, they're trying to, to make that more, more possible. And again, on the same logic that we just talked about with the racist comment, because you're a Christian and you believe in the Christian story that God created all people with value and dignity and worth and without the authority to take lives, you speak into that. I'm not saying you start a, a political campaign and, and rally. I'm just saying you, you speak into that. You say, hey, why do you think that that's okay? Like, share with me your perspective 
okay, well, I think that there's a creator that made people. I don't think he gave people the authority to kill people. I think that those are, are human beings. And can you imagine how unpopular you might get at your workplace if you started to do things like that? The cross before the crown. Faithfulness to speak about Jesus and maybe get rejected like him. These can be unpopular statements, but they're statements that we have to make and we have to learn how to do it faithfully, how to speak about him. And thank God that Jesus was faithful to his father and faithful to us to get up there on the cross and die for our sins, and now he wears the crown. So as we keep moving through the Gospel of Luke, this is what we needed to see today. This is what we can expect being on Jesus' team, the cross before the crown. What an adventure. What an adventure to be a part of. We should never be bored as long as we're really engaging in this mission. And Jesus calls it a happy life. A life where somehow we can mourn but still be happy, be hungry but still be happy because our greatest reward is found in heaven. And so I'm excited to see how, how we as Doxa continue to speak about Jesus together and to bring the healing that the world needs through the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we, we come to you as a church that you have called, you've chosen us. You've even put us in this time and place. You've put us in, in Madison. God, you've made us college students right now. You've made us moms and dads right now. You've made us friends and coworkers. You've put us in a place to be faithful to speak about you. Thanks for calling us to be a team. God, we, we need courage. We need uh, your example. We need help to take the cross before the crown, but I pray that you would help us do it by the power of your Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to raise from the dead. We love you and we're going to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.